Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs, where our crack team of very stable geniuses has everything you need to keep ahead of Brexit and all its works. My name's Dorian Linsky and it's a doubly exciting show this week. Not only do we have a very special guest, but also returning from the Antarctic Fortress of Solitude, where he spent Christmas, politics.co.uk editor and Romaniacs regular Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Did you, did you hanker for Brexit while you were away? I did not. In fact, it was really very nice not to speak or think about it. It's actually been oh. quite, I've got to say, it's been quite, it's been quite depressing coming back, really. I sort of, you know, so the couple of sort of days depressing before I... Depressing for us, too. No, I can, I, I can imagine. I, I, you know, seeing you guys has been obviously the highlight so far. But like, a couple of days before I came back, I started sort of looking at Twitter again and seeing the news, and that was all right. Every time I looked at Brexit news, my heart just sort of sank, and I thought, oh, Christ, I'm going to have to dive back into it. There's a sort of mixture of the division and the technicalities and all that. And so it was only really yesterday before I started reading about Brexit again, and I did it with a, with a very, very heavy heart. And then <laughs> in the distance, you spotted Liam Fox desperately scouting out a trade team. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's Ros Taylor, who edits the brilliant LSE Brexit Vote blog, and as of a few weeks ago, is research manager of the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission. Good alliteration. Hi, Ros. What's the commission all about? Well, we call it the T3, for short, obviously. Uh, it's about online mis- misinformation, basically. Uh, we don't call it fake news because that term has been pretty much debased by Donald Trump, among others. But it's about how uh, misinformation, disinformation is spread online, not just by the mainstream media, by other players, by the platforms. And we're looking at what's, what are the systemic problems going on here? So it's big, big, urgent stuff. It's very exciting. Cool. And that special guest I mentioned is the brand new superhero of Remain, Lord Adonis, who quit the government's infrastructure commission with a blistering attack on Brexit at the end of the year. Welcome to Romaniacs. How are you? Great to be with you. Um, and I interviewed Lord Sugar last year and he made it very clear that I could in no circumstances call him Alan. I'm Andrew. We can do Andrew. <laughs> yes, yes. That's, that's and it's very easy for me to be Andrew because Nigel Farage wants my peerage. <laughs> As we all know, he wants to get into the House of Lords. And I'm prepared to offer him a deal. I understand he has a German passport. So the deal is, he can have my peerage if I can have his passport. <laughs> because uh, I think probably his German passport is pretty valuable at the moment. This so is good. that, that is, might be a good trade. This is like swap shop. Well, there's a lot of swapping that's going on. And indeed, the number of Brits who are busy trying to get passports in other European countries because they do not want to be outside the European Union. You know, I'm a Cypriot. My dad came from Cyprus. Cyprus is now sort of selling its passports for uh, many hundreds of pounds. And there's a kind of auction going on between countries as to in the EU as to who can charge most for them. So uh, this is quite a live issue at the moment. Because, of course, uh, Farage uh, was obviously not happy with your resignation letter and described you on Good Morning Britain as a twisting little weasel. And then you had quite a lot of fun on Facebook that's, digging up fascinating facts about the weasel. Yeah, that's true about the weasel. But also uh, the crucial thing to understand, of course, is that Nigel Farage is prime minister at the moment. <laughs> he he exercises all of the power of the office. He has control of the policy and central direction of the government. And therefore, it was a huge relief to the country to see that two days ago when Theresa May was trying but failing to reshuffle her government because she can't move any of the Brexit ministers because Nigel won't let her. Nigel was actually doing the serious business of government, meeting Monsieur Barnier in Brussels and doing the deals. <laughs> so I hope now that uh, I'm very happy to be a weasel, providing he will admit to being prime minister and not ha- lie to this subterfuge of wearing a very strange hat in Brussels of pretending he's an ordinary <laughs> member of the public. <laughs> Well, we'll talk more about the, um, that, that splendid reshuffle later. We'll also be talking to political writer Paul Evans about his latest book with the striking title, Save Democracy, Abolish Voting. 
But first, a quick word from Roz on how you can help the weasels of Romaniacs. The main thing you can do, of course, is to follow us on Twitter at RomaniacsCast. You'll get all the show updates plus unmissable opportunities to help us argue with people who have bulldog avatars and surnames composed of strings of eight digits. <laughs> but if you want to take our beautiful relationship up a level, why not back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform? Pledge a few pounds a month and you can be in line for Romaniacs mugs, t-shirts and bags plus first dibs on tickets for our live shows. There will be an announcement on next week's show, but Patreon backers will get the news first. So sign up now and you can be down the front in the mosh pit as Ian rocks out with a detailed discussion of Cruncher of Origin checks. <laughs> <laughs> Your backing helps keep Romaniacs going and we really do appreciate it. Find out more about backing us on Patreon at Romaniacs.com. Right, first we're going to do, uh, for the benefit of Ian, uh, previously on Brexit, kind of... <laughs> oh, great, you know, I'll get my personal roundup. Hi- highlights reel, because you, you missed some good stuff. No sooner had you gone away than Dominic Grieve led a revolt of 11 Tory MPs to guarantee a parliamentary vote on the deal. Damien Green got sacked for failing to clear his search history. Nick Clegg got a knighted. Mm. We're getting blue passports. <laughs> and now there's a massive row about stamps. So, in order of importance... The Tory rebellion, we obviously talked about this at the time, <coughs> even without you. Um, and it felt like a kind of a bit of a new dawn, uh, just for Christmas, that finally they kind of found their, their spine. Um, wh- where's this going? When, when, are we, when are the rebels going to kind of, are the rebels going to keep rebelling? We don't really know, really. I mean, I think a lot of it comes on something that we didn't mention there, which would be the, the deal, really, or at least the first phase deal. And anyone looking at... ages ago. Yeah, no, I, well, indeed, but that was the bit, I mean, I, I sort of saw that I was in this airport in Argentina really early, and I sort of saw that come out and was trying to read it and just thinking, like, I am definitely emotionally damaged enough that I am going to have to read this now and sort of take a peek on the, halfway through. And, of course, that whole thing is, it's a, you know, it's a circle being squared, which is that whole thing, you know, if you're going to have a border in Ireland or you're going to have regulatory harmonisation, everybody knows that whole thing just doesn't go together. So you push the problem slightly further away, but slightly further away doesn't take you that far. It really takes you to this summer or this autumn. And in those situations, I think, is where we're going to see just how much of a sort of appetite for Tory rebellion there really is. Were you punching the Antarctic air when the, uh, when the rebels spoke up? I, was, I missed most of that. Once I, once I was sort of in the Antarctic, there wasn't really any internet reception. So I sort of, I missed an awful lot of that. I had sort of like 10 minutes a day and I didn't really spend it sort of checking the news, if I'm honest. I spoke to you guys once or twice and to friends once or twice. That was about it. I'm surprised so, that Ian didn't run into Liam Fox trying to negotiate a trade treaty. Yeah, exactly. With um, the penguins. Antarctica, I mean, I think the penguins probably high, quite, well, quite high on his list, I would have thought, of places which might substitute for Germany and France as trade <laughs> yeah, partners. They'd love our jam. Yeah, no, I think we could do very well at that. Um, and the other thing I wanted I would submit, because obviously you missed, you missed sort of blue passports, uh, but you're back for stamps. Um, Exciting. Do, do we feel, I mean, this has become a theme in, in the kind of recent weeks. Do we think that these kind of uh, ridiculous sort of culture war arguments, which are also kind of largely appears newspaper, well, sort of newspaper driven and then kind of uh, it allows for good sort of cheap gimmicks from the government. Is this going to be the kind of a common theme for this year just these kind of silly gestures undoubtedly and of course i thought that's exactly where the toby young stuff fit into as well by the way which is just the old culture war which is really to identify a section that you're trying to appeal to and bring it in i mean he wasn't being brought in for any reason to do with free schools or anything like that he was brought in because they wanted to say to guys at the mail and guys at the express look we're going to get this guy to kick the shit out of some snowflake students and off we go and that's to satisfy them 
all the other considerations come afterwards, like the logistics of how you might do any of this stuff. So, of course, that is, that is the currency that they use, is the right-wing culture war, and that is the only kind of language that they seem to understand, because when you get down to the actual business of government, as we've seen this week, they are uniquely inadequate when it comes to conducting themselves in those ways. So, yeah, absolutely, we'll be seeing an awful lot more of this throughout the year. Andrew, did you notice a kind of like uh, these sort of, you know, culture war heating up and a more kind of... Uh a sort of more poisonous, divisive mood around these kind of symbols. I thought what was striking about it was that, as Ian said, they tried to do it, but it completely misfired. Nobody under the age of 40, of course, has had one of these famous hard you know, black passports or blue passports. I remember them as being black rather than blue, mm. but maybe it's some shade in between the two. So uh, this was just passed by about half of the, the voters immediately, even despite the fact that, of course, it then transpired on day two that we could have had black or blue passports anyway. It was the choice of our government not to have them. So Theresa May wasn't even aware of the facts that she was seeking to negotiate when she said that this was going to be the first great triumph of British sovereignty. And as for the uh, the snowflakes and, uh, and, and universities, well, the cartoon I've liked best and enjoyed most over the last two days was the day after Dominic Grieve led his merry army to defeat the government on the meaningful vote which of course the Tory rips had never thought he would do because they always make the mistake which is a big mistake in politics in thinking that moderates never rebel, that they won't actually do the business and afterwards was the cartoon with the Titanic next to the iceberg and the legend was Revenge of the Snowflakes (laughs) (laughs) Well does that feel good, Ian, to... Uh, to go through all of that? To go through all of that. No, no, I feel marginally worse. <laughs> good. Um, but there has been some actual new news these past few days as well. Theresa May applied her reverse Midas touch to a cabinet reshuffle uh, with predictable results. And, and as you said, that sort of Nigel Farage is the, you know, as the real prime minister, and that this reshuffle... It's really hard to reshuffle if you've got all these sort of fixed positions based not on uh, experience, competence... Uh, likeability, whatever you might base those decisions on, but purely on are you leave or remain? I mean, does that, is that, how do you even do a proper reshuffle well, like it that? It makes it difficult to do it, particularly when there's a veto on moving any of, any of the people who want us to leave, which has been the big problem. Uh, you know, I've been um, uh, literally uh, trolling Chris Grayling uh, in, the last, <laughs> in the last 10 days, but with a very good reason that this man is, is in the process of throwing away hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of, of public money. And the, and the reason why he's doing it is straightforward ideology. He's got a train company that's uh, threatening to, um, to walk away from running a franchise. What he should do, which is what I did when I was Transport Secretary, which is to say, OK, you walk away, we nationalise it, no more business. He won't do that because it might mean giving a trick to Jeremy Corbyn on the issue of nationalisation. Now, what should happen is that, um, let's be frank, Chris Grayling, who is abusing uh, the, uh, the public trust in this way, he ought to be given his P45. But, of course, he ran Theresa May's campaign and he's an arch-Brexiteer, so he cannot be moved. Prime Minister Nigel Farage does not allow him to be moved. So, uh, so Chris Grayling, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, Liam Fox, David Davis, all of the people who the immediate staff around uh, Prime Minister Nigel Farage, they all stay. But Justine Greening, who's done nothing particularly wrong, I mean, she's a perfectly competent minister, but happens to be... Um, uh, a Remainer, uh, she gets the chop um, because she's almost the only bit of the jigsaw that can be moved without uh, Nigel Farage's veto. Well, she, uh, and it's at uh, PMQs, was sat next to um, 
Dominic Grieve. Yes, I think she might be sitting next to him quite a lot <laughs> in the next few months. <laughs> and I think probably when it comes to the next big rebellion, and the next big rebellion like the one before Christmas will be when we get to the issue of uh, a referendum on Mrs May's terms. I would expect that that group that rebelled while Ian was, um, was cavorting in, uh, was it Antarctic or the Arctic? I've got no, a Antarctic. bit. Antarctic. Mm-hmm. Well, when he returns to Antarctic in, in or the Arctic in, to look at more penguins <laughs> in, uh, in the autumn, <laughs> the next rebellion takes place, I would expect that we will see Justine Greening prominently in the list of those who are voting for a referendum. No, it, I mean, if we go into where that might be, by yeah, the way, if we look yeah. at her constituency, it's a very heavily Remain constituency, I think 75%, very, very high. She's obviously couldn't do anything when she's on the front bench. When she's on the back bench, I mean, her majority was slashed down to 1,500. I think it was about 10,000 before the election. Now, that is part and parcel of something that the more studies we do, the more we see that this election was about Remain strategic voting. That was one of the crucial issues that took place. It's been very dispiriting to me when I've come back to see so many people sort of say, what are Remainers going to do differently this year, considering that you had such a bad year last year? I thought last year wasn't actually that bad for Remain. I actually thought there were some real moments of victory. And one of them was the general election, something that has been understated and underreported, but did involve tactical voting with real effects. You look at someone in her position who may not be tempted to rebel, is now in a political position where if you don't start rebelling against the government line, that is your job that's going to go. So, yeah, I absolutely would expect her to be sitting next to Dominic Grieve on many more Wednesday afternoons to come. And, Rods, was there anybody in the, in the reshuffle that you actually thought was, um, you know, was, was really there on merit as opposed to <laughs> optics? Was there, is there anyone that sort of uh, impresses you? Uh, to be honest, well, I, it, it will be interesting to see what happens. I mean, it, it, Joe Johnson's move out of um, universities was interesting to be replaced by uh, San Gimbiar, and that's uh, that could lead to some an interesting change of direction. Um, maybe fewer Toby Young-style moves. We don't know. Uh, it's a little bit, I guess, slightly more diverse cabinet now, which is a uh, a good thing. But I think, yeah, I mean, there, there was there were some people rising up. The, um, the levels of government and it will be very interesting to see how they perform. Other people like, say, Rory Stewart who was kicked out of his job as African minister and uh, moved to uh, basically justice and prisons which was totally mystifying just because maybe he's a Remainer? I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? Well, she had to move somebody because having got all of the Nigel Farage vetoes or not being able to move, she, there weren't many options and, 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 and I think he probably was one of the few piece, pieces of the jigsaw that could be moved. Because Rory yeah. Stewart has always, has, has always been the kind of... Uh, the, the Tory, I, it's okay to like for me. Um, are there, the people that you know in the either you know in the current cabinet or backbenches that do sort of the, in the, your experience the ordinary that, human beings? Yeah, that no, sort of imp- that impress you. Within politician parameters, I'm hard put to think of anybody who meets that test. I mean, if you give me a ten minutes notice and we have complete silence, I might think of a name, but I can't immediately. I'm afraid. And yet, should should the tide turn, I think you'll find there's an awful lot of conservatives who'd follow it with the right leader. With it, it would, should should the tide turn, they're just waiting. Yeah, the the dog that isn't barking at the moment is Ruth Davidson in Scotland, because everyone knows that Ruth Davidson is middle of the road conservative who basically is pro-European. I mean, she's basically what, of course, most of the Conservative Party was until Margaret Thatcher became the first Brexiteer in 1988, which was a, a sensible, pragmatic pro-European who wants us to be internationally engaged, not isolated, all these things which are very moderate opinions, which now has us cast into the outer darkness as extremists. Mm. Now, Ruth is in that tradition, and Ruth has, has been very, has taken kind of the vow of omerta in the last uh, two months and said almost nothing about Brexit at all. She'll speak about anything to do with the minutiae of, uh, of, of Scottish politics and uh, and policy, but she's off the field when it comes to um, Brexit. But I suspect that might start changing in the end game of this uh, ugly year that we're about to embark on.
Yeah, yeah, she's always good to watch. Meanwhile, in Labourland, Jeremy Corbyn categorically told Labour MPs that Britain cannot stay in the single market after Brexit. He refused to attend a single market summit convened by the SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford and is sticking to his peculiar idea that when people voted to leave the EU, they voted to leave the single market and the single market membership requires us to be members of the EU. And this is objectively not true. So, again, the question, is he, is he confused or dishonest? It's not only objectively not true, but it's not true by virtue of Labour's own policy, because Labour's policy is to stay in the single market for two years after we leave the EU. So he can't have that and then turn around and say, well, you have to be in the EU if you're in the single market, when your own policy is to do the opposite. So there comes a point where you have to say, look, it's not just that he's, that he's being stupid. He has to be being cynical here. There's no other possible answer that you can go with that explains this sort of thing. However, I, I still sort of feel that that fight within Labour, and I think Andrew's going to do a better job of describing this than I am, is still quite vibrant and alive. People say different things about Starmer. Some people say that Starmer genuinely doesn't think he can stay in the single market, but that's not the impression that I get by the way that he behaves. Those battles are still being fought within there, and it's not really worth giving up entirely on Labour. We're still, you know, when people sort of say, that's it, I'm off, I'm going to join the Lib Dems, it seems to me to most Remainers, you vote tactically when you get to the next chance to do so along these sort of lines and that that battle is not quite over yet. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Corbyn's position, as he sees it, is that being in the single market requires freedom of movement and that is one of the four freedoms demanded by the single market and even countries which are not in the single market, like Norway, have, have freedom of movement. Now, the question then becomes, is that what the single market is always going to be or is there a chance that Labour, if Labour came to power and went back to Brussels and did a bit of, you know, crawling, uh, could negotiate some kind of thing that would restrict freedom of movement enough to satisfy those in the Labour Party opposed it, to, to, to satisfy the general public who we know were quite swayed by, by those arguments mm. against freedom of movement. That is what he's grappling with. He is right to say that at the moment the single market demands freedom of movement and he's not prepared to tolerate that. So the question is, can that change? Most MPs and, 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 and members, Labour members, you know, by huge margins in the membership as well, support... Um, you know, membership of the EU, certainly membership of the single market, uh, however that might manifest. Um, do you think the debate is, you know, the debate is still very, is, is sort of very, you know, lively within the party and there's a lot of room to move? The, the Labour membership is overwhelmingly pro-European. I mean, I did a, a meeting just before Christmas of the Labour Club in the University of Warwick and there were 50 of the youngsters there. And I said at the beginning that none of this stuff about soft Brexit, uh, Switzerland, Norway and all that if we could just stop this completely how many of you would support that? And every hand but one went up. So I said well I'll now explain to you how it's going to happen, how we will stop it during the course of 2018 and then we had a good discussion afterwards and I said how many of you buy that at the end? You know, my explanation is how we're going to get to a referendum because Labour will ultimately come out in favour of one then Dominic mm. Grieve and his and his army will come in support. And all the same hands went up, except the one hand that didn't go up again, the same person. So I looked at this guy and said, uh, what do I need to do to persuade you? And he said, oh, don't worry about me. I'm the UKIP plant. <laughs> <laughs> that is the state of the Labour Party at the moment. Now, Jeremy is playing a long game. He didn't get where he is at the moment by playing short games. He is very good at outstaring almost everybody he engages. This is a guy who went into Parliament and spent whatever it was, 30 years as the serial rebel on the back benches, with nobody thinking it was going to be possible for him to reach any position of prominence, let alone leader. Uh, this, we're, we're in the early stages of this game yet, and what Jeremy is essentially doing is saying nothing... 
letting the Prime Minister, both Prime Ministers, Farage and, um, and uh, Theresa May, uh, stew in their own juice. And then I wouldn't expect to see any gambit from Jeremy until uh, the summer at the earliest. That's interesting because a lot, I mean, I do see on, on, on Twitter, there's a lot of sort of Labour members going, that's it, I'm done with the party. Mm. You know, it's impossible to support, you know, to oppose Brexit and support Labour. You know, that's, that's sort of... Yeah, that's not clearly not the case because the overwhelming yeah. majority of Labour MPs exhibit their pro-Europeanism day by day. So it's, it's very clear at the moment that the leadership is out of step both with Labour MPs and even more out of step with Labour members, which are, as I say, are overwhelmingly in favour. Now, uh, the, the logic of these um, positions, I think, will assert themselves over the coming months. And in particular, the fact that virtually every member of the Labour Party under the age of 30 is pro-European. Now, these are Jeremy's army. You know, the young flocked to Jeremy Corbyn's standard because they see him rightly as, as a man of idealism and uh, somebody who isn't a conventional politician who's spending all his time saying why things can't be done. So, again, I think there's a logic which is going to assert itself, but don't expect Jeremy to move soon. Mm. Do, do say. you mean, when you say he's playing a long game, do you mean that he has a long-term strategy that he is pursuing or rather that he's just holding back until he sees the way the winds go. and He's he'll holding back. OK, so the he, he doesn't feel he needs to make a call on this one. I don't think he'll feel he needs to make a call for quite a while yet. At the moment, the story, as he sees it, is uh, Theresa May imploding. Uh, he thinks she might implode entirely, which I, actually I don't think, because governments, by and large, this, there's always a... Because you're in the Westminster bubble, you think a government which is doing badly is always about to uh, give up the ghost entirely. In fact, there's... As um, Adam Smith famously said of a country, there's a lot of ruin in a country. I'm afraid there's a lot of ruin in a government, and governments tend not to com- to commit euthanasia. So I don't think that's going to happen. But clearly, things are getting worse for Theresa May, and he won't make his move until a lot further down the line. Is there anyone in particular that you think is sort of influencing his offices? I mean, people talk about the, the trade unions would have quite a lot of influence, especially around freedom of movement and things like that. The unions would have a big influence. Um, and, of course, those people who are immediately around him have a big influence as well. And uh, a lot of those actually are, are strongly pro-European. Now, Keir Starmer, who we mentioned earlier, Keir is a mainstream pro-European. What he's doing is playing a, a tactical game too. And he's sort of triangulating between Jeremy and the party, which I think he's done quite skillfully. And as Ian said... The, the two-year commitment to staying in the single market actually makes a nonsense of any idea that we, we couldn't have at least that as our end position. But, of course, I wouldn't be satisfied with that because what's becoming clearer and clearer is that this whole nonsense just has to be stopped. It's turning into a national nightmare. And uh, over the next 15 months, the, the issue is how we get to a referendum to stop it. Just before we move on, Ian, you were keen to talk uh, briefly about... David Davis complaining about the EU's preparation for no deal scenario. Oh, God, this is just beautiful. Was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, it's if you haven't seen it, there's a letter that David Davis has written to Theresa May going, Oh my God, the EU are preparing for no deal. <laughs> sort of think like, well, this is an extraordinary thing for you to be saying because, of course, they've spent the last 18 months saying, Well, you know, no deal is better than a bad deal. It turns out that some people in Europe may have believed them and started saying to businesses, Well, you know what, you may need to start preparing in March 2019 for there not being any arrangements in place. David Davis has finally spotted this throwing all of his toys out the pram and written to his mate at one point he says he literally complains i have this written down somewhere i think it basically complains that the eu is saying that we're going to have third party status in march 2019 and you think well this is literally the policy that you have been pursuing and promoting for the last 18 months and you are now astonished when it is said back to you by your opposing partner the quite quite extraordinary state of affairs that we've landed in he also at one point seems to threaten legal action before taking back of course that legal action would go to the european court of justice which was one of his own red lines as to what he needs to extract himself from and is now just simply lobbying the commission to make them take another view but really the letter 
is again, you know, that perpetual psychological slash philosophical question that you always come to in Brexit is, are they stupid or are they cynical? And again, that letter raises all of those prospects with David Davis. Is he really that stupid or is he really just that cynical? Do you know, that's not one of the questions <laughs> I spend the small hours of the morning worrying about. <laughs> <laughs> the state of David Davis's mind. Um, what we need to do is whatever the motivation, we just need to, to stop the result, which is e- e- ever greater absurdity. Well, it's the old Trump problem, isn't it? That you can have endless arguments about his intellect or his sanity, but it's the outcomes that matter. I don't. I never bother arguing about his intellectualism. I think with Trump, it's at least definitive, isn't it? He is just a monkey smearing himself in his own shit. But the actual, I mean, and the outcomes, you know, may may change, but his psychology is demonstrable. But, but, but David, David Davis is more sphinx-like. You are, he's much more what's, interesting psychologically than Donald Trump is. I mean, what's hard. going on behind that Toby Jug face? <laughs> You've been hearing from throughout the show, our special guest, Andrew Adonis. He was head of Tony Blair's policy unit, transport minister under Gordon Brown, and chairman of the Conservatives' National Infrastructure Commission until the end of last year when he quit with that tour de force resignation letter. Um, now, obviously, to take this job and shove it can be quite a cathartic moment. Did it? Ha- but, you know, it can also be, particularly when it's this public, it could also be quite painful. How was it for you sort of emotionally writing that letter? Well, I don't like resigning. I mean, you, you know... Uh, Great victories are not made by resignations. I, I, I always like to stick in there. But my view is that the, the big action over the next year is going to be in the political arena. Uh, unusually, the House of Lords, which normally doesn't play much part in the political uh, arena, is going to be quite significant because um, uh, a lot of Brexit is parliamentary and a lot of the parliamentary issues, almost all of the parliamentary issues, are constitutional by definition because they're, we're rewriting a whole swathe of the constitution by leaving the European Union, which we've been in for 45 years. So uh, I, I, the conclusion I came to is that I couldn't in all conscience remain, uh, even though I was an independent advisor, I couldn't remain an independent advisor and therefore having to draw back from public debate and enter the fray in a really serious way on Brexit. And uh, so reluctantly I took the decision that I had to be uh, in the political arena and not in the advisor's arena. And had that been on your mind for a while? Was it a kind of slow brewing? Uh, well, I'd... I'd kept hoping that we'd wake up one day and Brexit would turn out to be a nightmare <laughs> and that it wasn't really happening. Um, but when I was away uh, skiing in Europe, which I'm told is by Nigel Farage is a, a, a liberal elitist thing to do, which because I imagine Nigel's never appeared on uh, on skis or, 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 or visited Austria because that's I mean, just Austria is clearly very elitist and upper class place. I mean, there were, no, there were no workers in Austria, are there by definition? So when I was thinking about this on my, you know, looking out over, over the Alps, and actually it's a very good way of thinking about Europe, looking out over the Alps, because you can see over I could see from where I was sitting uh, three countries and I thought well, look I mean you know life only happens once you've got to do the right thing and the right thing in this case is clearly to do what I can to help stop this nonsense and did you how long did you work on the latter because there was some there were some ringing phrases in there well I, I wrote it in uh, while I was skiing in my mind and then um, I made the mistake of uh, of sharing it in draft with uh, some government officials who uh, then passed it up to the political people in number 10, which I don't think, frankly, they should have done, but I understand, you know, this is this is life. And then the number 10 people decided that they were going to release it without my consent 
and without even telling me. So the first I knew that they'd that they'd um, done it was when I got a phone call from the Press Association saying, we have your letter of resignation. And I said, well, that's very, very uh, clever of you because I haven't sent it. And they said, oh, we've, been, we, 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 we've been sent a draft. And of course, by a convoluted process, because I won't make places to come from, they did admit it had come from number 10. Now, uh, this, I'm afraid, tells you a lot about the kind of sort of dirty trick culture that we're now in, which we saw in the reshuffle too, a lot, which is that people aren't being treated with respect at all. And what I think is happening, which is, is deeply deeply damaging is that uh, Brexit is infecting our, our public culture. So things are happening in terms of the conduct of government and the conduct of personal relations in what's becoming a kind of, of atavistic environment, which simply didn't happen before. And I see it also since I uh, uh, resigned 10 days ago, I, I get between five and 10 death threats a day, mostly on Twitter, but some by email and some by anonymous letters, including pictures of gibbets and things of this kind. Now, I have never, I've been in public life now for the best part of 20 years. I have never experienced this before. And it's not just a fringe thing. It's happening quite a lot. I think, and remember, Joe Cox was murdered during the referendum campaign. This is, the, the stakes here are very high. The, this is eating away at our national culture. And I think that's part of the reason why it's, it's got to be stopped, is that what it's doing is licensing a kind of form of national fascism, which we need to put back in its box pretty quickly before it erodes more of our public life. Are you concerned about your own security? Well, curiously, I'm not. I send some of these things on to the parliamentary security people, the ones which look to me to be as if they, you know, might somebody behind them might actually conceivably do something. But, uh, I mean, we are England, so I still fondly believe that nothing like this would actually happen. But having said that, though, never, never forget Joe Cox. Mm. And never forget how she was murdered. I mean, the, the, when I was thinking about why I needed to go, is, is we, we cannot allow this to happen to our country. We cannot become a xenophobic little England country that scapegoats Europe and foreigners and pretends that they are the cause of all our evils. We have seen too much of that in history. It is not part of our national life and our national culture, and it's simply got to be stopped. Do you have any, sort of, for the way that you do it, sort of emotionally, when, you, when you're getting dragged into those sort of dogfights, of how you try to keep yourself in an emotional state where you're still being civil and, and sort of reasonable? I mean, I heard you on LBC the other day with Ian Dale. I thought you were doing a good job there of sort of balancing that kind of attitudinal approach to these sort of debates. Is there anything that you use to stop yourself getting too sort of het up as you? I always try to use reason and arguments. I mean, this is slightly quaint in the current context. You know, I started trying to use reason and arguments when I was arguing with the Prime Minister, Nigel Farage, two days ago on the, uh, on the television. He started shouting, uh, literally shouting and yelling down the, um, uh, down the line from, from Brussels at me. Uh, I wasn't sure if he genuinely lost control or whether it's an act. I think it's an act, but I couldn't be absolutely sure that it's an act. And this is when I was called the, um, the little twisted weasel and many other things. And, of course, in the process, he wants to abolish the House of Lords. I assume he only wants to abolish it after he's gone there. <laughs> Uh, but maybe, you know, he wants a new House of Lords that just has him in it and some UKIP people. You can call it the House of UKIP, you know. I mean, maybe that's what he wants to do. But uh, none of this is, is pleasant at all. Is there, thinking about these culture wars, is there a danger that Remainers are retreating a bit? And, well, not so much retreating, but being drawn into the culture war that the right-wing press, the mainstream, parts of the mainstream media, have started because they have you know it is as as you say the what is being stoked up is this intense cultural war and i think what i'm beginning to see is remainers picking up on sometimes fairly trivial things like the stamps and the blue passports and pointing out what's all right and and, and then it becomes we, we we get sucked into this these quite comforting bubbles where we tell each other how ridiculous it all is and we're not necessarily going out there and changing minds how can we do that 
How, how can we get stop this becoming a war? Well, it's quite telling, isn't it, that our cultural wars at the moment are about stamps and the colour of passports. They're not like the cultural wars in the United States, which are about whether creationism should be on should should, <laughs> should be on the curriculum in Alabama, uh, or whether abortion should be outlawed because it, the Republicans would far rather talk about abortion than talk about inequalities of of wealth, which is, after all, that ought to be the the mainstay of, of of democratic politics. So, at the moment, I don't think it's reached danger points, but. Another few years of this, and who knows where it might end up. And that is the biggest... This, the, 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 actually, the best thing, I think, that Theresa May did was to invoke Article 50 in, it, early, which means that this thing will all have to be resolved by March 2019, because I don't think that the country could take a lot more of it after that. I, you know, I, I, I'm dedicating this year to getting us, I hope, with others, including present company, on the track to, to, to remaining and the second referendum and all that, but... If we do need to sort this out in the next 15 months, we do not want the next five and ten years of the history of this country being spent, as you say, in developing an ever more atavistic cultural war. Well, we talk about another resignation where, where Alan Milburn quit as the government's social mobility advisor. And the kind of point that, that, that he was making was about the kind of the bandwidth that the government is left with. Um, to actually deal with these with these long term problems, and of course, it's striking that you know the idea of the sort of cross party cooperation and and kind of people bringing a lot of expertise to these particular areas, and then feeling that there's just no point and that they they have to kind of step away. Does it feel as if Brexit is paralysing government, and that there are all these these really quite serious issues that there is just no. Uh, investment in solving at the moment. Well, Camilla Cavendish, who was uh, David Cameron's head of policy, said on Newsnight uh, last night that uh, that government was now frozen. That, 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 that was her word. Government was frozen. And I think that that's true. Apart from Brexit, uh, there is basically no government in terms of, um, of reform or anything like that taking place at the moment. And um, uh, that, I think, is, is inevitably going to be the case because the energy which it takes to renegotiate all these treaties... Uh, is is just overwhelming. You know, just taking the department I know really well, transport, at the moment about half of the officials in the department are busy trying to work out what's going to happen to air traffic at the end of March 2019. Mm. This is not a trivial matter. Mm. Unless we renegotiate all our international air traffic agreements, uh, about half of the planes that leave Heathrow won't be flying at the end of March 2019. And these are, involve very complicated safety regimes and things of this kind. You can't just sort of wave a magic wand and say it'll all be okay. This is happening department by department at the moment. And uh, every time, you know, somebody put it to me that every time you overturn a, t- turn up a stone at the moment, about 50 things start crawling out in all different kinds of directions and you're busy trying to catch them. And that's what's going on across Whitehall. Do you think that can lead to, there's so much of this, including with, you know, for, for trade agreements that we have with, with third parties through the EU. Do you think any of that could lead to at least a victory on the debate as to whether we, instead of transitioning go into extending Article 50? Because at the moment, I mean, anyone who understands the issue will say extending Article 50 is the way to go. That is the only way to keep things as they are. Transition involves a whole new legal category we don't really know anything about. Do you think that debate at least can be won? Well, what's very clear is that um, uh, Brussels itself uh, and our European partners don't want to extend Article 50. We all think that somehow we are the sun around which everything moves. But if you're sitting there in Brussels or in Paris or Berlin and we're going to spend the next year basically obsessing about the terms on which Britain leaves, the idea from their point of view that this 15 months should become another two years, another three years, all of that is is not where things are at at all. And what was so striking when I went with Ken Clark and Nick Clegg uh, a few months ago to meet uh, to, to meet Monsieur Barnier is uh, it was how 
uh, adamant he and his colleagues were that this process should indeed be completed. He wants to take the British government at its word that it should be completed there because from their point of view, you know, they have a bandwidth problem too. There's a, there's a whole floor of the Berlin one with some of the brightest minds in Brussels who, which could be negotiating trade treaties with, with China and so on, which at the moment are having to negotiate the terms of Brexit. So I don't think that Article 50 will be extended and actually, I, I know this isn't a, 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 a universal view amongst uh, the Remainers, but I don't think it should be extended either. I don't think we should give the people who are trying to wrench us out of the EU the alibi that a bit more time might make it easier. There are some very simple and clear-cut issues here. They do not take time to sort out. It's true that the details of trade treaters take years to negotiate but the basic principle of are we in the single market or not in the customs union or not is it basically going to be norway switzerland or canada plus in the jargon those are very simple issues the much much simpler issue is don't do this at all yes or no to whatever is the principles that mrs may comes forward with and don't do it and they can easily be resolved by march 2019 they don't need any extension of article 50 can we go into that then briefly just i mean you you, so you say you you want to plan over the year can you just go into that plan and how it would be the, pl- the plan is how I see things developing. Yes, oh, how, you want, how you want to stop things. Because at the moment, I mean, it doesn't seem particularly stoppable. Oh, I think it's eminently stoppable because the, cr- the crucial requirement is that Labour moves on the issue of a referendum on Mrs May's final terms. As soon as Labour moves on that, so as soon as Jeremy Corbyn makes what I think will be the move he makes in the end game in, uh, in the summer or the autumn, more likely the autumn, at that point you're down to 10 or 15 votes in the House of Commons on, on whether there should be a referendum or not. And, and so essentially you're down to exactly the same vote as took place before Christmas on whether there should be a quote-unquote meaningful vote. But instead of meaningful vote we'll be talking about the only meaningful vote that there can be in this context which is a referendum because almost everyone accepts when you press them that parliament can't stop this process of brexit whatever it thinks of the treaty because parliament can't trump a referendum the sovereign people spoke 18 months ago and i do not know any parliamentarians who seriously think that parliament can stand in the way of the people given that they have taken a view. So the logic of that situation, I think, is very clear that the only way you can trump one referendum is with another. Labour will, in my view, move on that in the next six to nine months, and then everything depends upon Dominic Grieve and those people who are now sitting in a close huddle around him in the House of Commons. If they move, then you have a repeat of the vote we had before uh, Christmas in the House of Commons, which, remember, the government lost by four, and I think that all of the dynamic is going to be away from the government on this. You know, we have more people who have been sacked in the, in the reshuffle, there'll be more people people who are disaffected, Theresa May, because she'll be clearly in the last few months of her premiership, because everybody knows she's going to go after Brexit is, is concluded, she'll have no hold at all over the rebels by the autumn. Mm. So I am very, very confident. The only thing, in my view, standing in the way of us winning this is the belief that we can't win. We have simply got to un- be resolute at the moment, argue passionately that the sovereign people who took this decision of principle 18 months ago to start this process, they should have the final say, that they should have the final say on the final terms. And then I think there's everything to play for. In terms of when things happen, would you Im- imagine Labour calling for a second referendum before the parliamentary vote on the final deal? So after the final deal is concluded... But before Parliament votes on it or after Parliament votes on well, it? Well, the beauty of the amendment which was carried by Dominic Reid before Christmas is that the uh, is that the meaningful vote is not just a vote. It's been misdescribed. It's a bill. It is a requirement to introduce legislation to enshrine the terms of departure. Now, that is legislation that has to go all the way through the House of Commons and can be amended 
all the way through the House of Lords and can be amended. And the obvious amendment put in that bill is that it's, it should only come into force subject to the will of the people in a referendum. So you think actually yes. that's basically at the same time, really, that actually there'll yes. be one bill, which Parliament will presumably vote for, so they'll pass the, mm. the actual final withdrawal bill. But subject the, to. Subject to the amendment that there will be a referendum, a referendum on it. And you really think the Labour can move to that position? Yes. Well, what Easily. is it that makes you so confident? Well, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is... is, is absolutely hates siding with the Tories. He absolutely hates it. But he's so one thing. So the, when it comes to the end game and he's faced with having to support either tacitly or overtly the Tory terms for Brexit, I, I simply do not think psychologically he can go there. Even if he have his young army and all of that who won't want to go there, I don't think psychologically he'll be able to go there. It's not in his makeup at all mm-hmm. to say me too to Theresa May and the Tories. So my own view is that the, as I say, the, the whole logic of the situation is that he'll come out for a referendum, and then everything depends. Uh, the person who I think is going to determine whether we have a referendum or not is Dominic Grieve, because he's the person who's shown that he has a backbone and 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 is capable of voting against the government. And this this second referendum, because it's really important, this second second referendum is on the terms of the deal that Theresa May negotiates. Do you not think there's a risk that people will just want this process over with, that they will vote for the deal out of a sense of pragmatism that we didn't see first time round, um, and we will end up leaving on those pretty poor terms? Because, you know, there is a chance it will be rejected, but the, the what Brexiteers will argue is that if it's rejected, there will be chaos. How, how can we, this may be looking forward too far, but how can we preempt that? Well, there, there, there manifestly won't be chaos because if it's rejected, what will happen is we stay in the EU. You see, well, the other thing that Parliament will determine at this time is, is what are the options on the ballot paper. Now, what, of course, the government's been trying to insist on so far because they're following Nigel Farage's agenda, is that the choice should be between the treaty which Mrs May negotiates and leaving with no deal. But actually, that isn't the logical choice at all. The logical choice is between the it treaty which, yeah, yeah. which Mrs May negotiates and staying in the EU. Yeah. And I can absolutely assure you, as a member of the House of Lords, there's no way that we will allow the choice, because it's not, it's not the correct choice that the country should make, the choice mm. to be between utter, utter carnage on the one side and... Um, Mrs May's deal when the actual choice which is the realistic choice is between Mrs May's deal which is the best terms on which we should leave because after all the government has negotiated those and not leaving at all now when it comes to referendum obviously we can't say with any certainty what's going to happen and obviously it's high risk I'm afraid that is politics and and life however the big big difference next time is that the young this time are not going to stay at home after the experience last time the young I predict in this referendum will vote in as large a number as the over 50s that alone I think will ensure that the referendum comes out right because they're not going to be voting by narrow margins for staying I would expect the young to be voting by huge majorities and in very large numbers to stay because they do not want their future trashed and they're absolutely right well there's, there's one more question which uh, which comes from a reader but sorry a few listeners um, so prepare to blush as Anthony Sinkaruk puts it who's our Oprah Says, he says, gesturing in your direction. There's been a lot of talk about how Remain lacks leadership. And after your letter, you were sort of talked of as, as that sort of figurehead. And so two questions, I suppose. Would you want that role? And two, do you think it's necessary to have 
a, a kind of figurehead? Well, I, I, I see my role is to do my, my duty over the next year. And um, one of the qualities I have, I'm, I'm glad to say, is that I'm pretty fearless. You know, having been a cabinet minister and all that, the sort of stuff that Number 10 throws and the Daily Mail throws and all that, that doesn't really have much impact on me. I don't have some racy private life or anything else which the Daily Mail can start digging up. I haven't, I don't particularly like money, so I haven't got offshore accounts in the case. So the sorts of things which often make people vulnerable. I'm not, you know about the skiing already. You know, the ski, I'm afraid that is, that is a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. But, you know, you know, as I said to my good friend Owen Jones, who's, who and we're in Albus he told me that perhaps skiing just proved as a member of the, um, of the liberal elite. You know, the working classes of France, Germany, uh, Switzerland and Austria, they ski. You know, this isn't a, this isn't a great crime. So I'm going to do my job over the next year. And the, the, the big, big prize for this is that we prevent ourselves committing an error as a country of the magnitude of Suez, but I think worse. Because the thing about Suez is it, is it affected our international credibility and good name, whereas, of course, this will have a big impact on what happens at home as well. Thank you, Andrew Dennis. That was very Radio 4 of me, wasn't was it? Well, well, you have to say <laughs> the full name at the end of the thing. Now, if we're going to save democracy, should we abolish voting? Paul Evans writes about democracy and the future of politics. He also works for the entertainment trades union, Bechtu, and plays the whistle in the Pogues tribute band. And he's the author of a new book with that self-same provocative title, Save Democracy, Abolish Voting. It's a big thought experiment that looks at everything that distorts our democracy, from highly motivated special interest groups and demagoguery to voters who freeload without participation, which he calls rational disengagement, the idea that people don't participate because they don't need to. Unsurprisingly, Brexit is at the centre of the book, and there's a lot that rings true. Not least of the more democratic a state is, the more you hear clearly expressed anger about democracy's failings. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Now, obviously, this is a deliberately sort of provocative book and, and i should and i should but by the way before we talk about that i should express my apologies to to all of you as the i, I didn't clear this with the liberal elite before i before i published it so <laughs> yeah. so uh well you know, we know to start, actually, I, I did it without without happen. your permission and you know it's very good of you to invite me in for a <laughs> spot of re-education well, you'll be you'll be punished later <laughs> <laughs> where did this sort of uh this idea come from and the idea i suppose to take it that far yes well. It started years ago. I used I've, I've blogged a lot. I, I was I was blogging for many years, particularly around representative democracy. I've always been very keen on representative democracy, and uh, very worried about the way that direct democracy has been evolving. And I was particularly I started blogging really because I saw the internet as something that would become uh, a wedge that would be used to introduce um, new crude versions of direct democracy in various forms. Um, about eight or nine years ago, I, wrote, I used to write for a blog called Slugger O'Toole in Belfast. Um, and I wrote a piece on referendums. And it was, it was essentially, it was a, you know, a provocation why referendums should be banned. I, I had to shorten the title because it was why referendums should be banned and their advocates shot. But, um, but obviously in Northern Ireland, that there's a little bit, a little bit risky. <laughs> where that, it, 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 you know, yeah. tends to be seen as incitement. So you've got to be a bit careful around that. So I started off writing about referendums. Then I, I, I've really been writing and thinking about direct democracy for a long time and thinking, really thinking through the arguments for representative democracy. And, and my views evolved in lots of ways. I, I mean, three or four years ago, if you told me someone had written a book called Save Democracy, Abolish Voting, I would have been, you know, I would have wanted them strung up. But we're not in Northern Ireland yeah, now. That's okay. But um, but the, you really it's quite heavy the, penalties to disagree. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, harsh but fair. <laughs> but um, the, the more I thought about it, the more I started thinking through 
the ways that representative democracy is struggling and why it's struggling. And I think we are at a point where we've kind of passed a few important milestones. I think the internet has changed a lot. I think there are that there are a range of things like, you know, astroturfing has become a lot easier. So someone with a lot of money can create a false grassroots movement or a synthetic grassroots movement, thus the term astroturfing, and use the money and, 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 and do it a lot more effectively because of the internet. Dark money is something that didn't exist in quite the pernicious way that it does now. And it's, you know, it's easier to raise, again, because of the internet. There's things like... Uh, you know, I mean, we've seen the super PACs in America. We've seen the replacement of good journalism by clickbait. So in a way, representative democracy is kind of suffering a death of a thousand cuts. Lots of little things politicians used to some extent get elected and then people wouldn't really think about them again for five years. And then five years time, they pop up and say, well, are things better? In, you know, if, if things are better, I'm going to vote for you again. If things are worse, I'm not going to vote for you. But now there is an expectation amongst a significant portion of the population that they can micromanage politicians and in a way brexit and this is this is why i'm very keen to come on your program in particular because i want to appeal to you and to your and to your, to your listeners stop moaning about brexit brexit isn't the problem you know if you understand what democracy is democracies sometimes do stupid things if you think that democracies shouldn't or aren't, aren't going to do stupid things you don't know what democracy is because it will do them the problem is that it's not actually not the will of the people one of the a things, referendum doesn't give you the will of the people, sorry. One of the things I wanted to ask you is because you, you talk quite a lot about the pernicious effect that technology has had, uh, astroturfing being an example. Mm. But then you also uh, talk about ways to as you know, divine the general preferences of the people in a non-electoral way um, using AI technologies. Now, that's it's got a sort of superficial appeal. It's something that I am very, very worried about. I think what we saw, what we've seen in the referendum and previous uh, and, and general election last year and previous elections was the beginning of sites that purported to tell you how to vote based on your preferences. Yeah, I've, I've not argued for, a, for, for AI being used in governance. You have, well, not in governance, but in people expressing their preferences, which is what feeds into governance and what decides policy ultimately, isn't it? But the, the, the proposal is that instead of having a vote, that we have a personal democracy budget mm. and that we use that to appoint uh, various you know, agencies that will govern on our behalf... Now, I mean, I don't think that's that's not an artificial intelligence thing. That's simply it's except that you'd you know. probably allocate it online, wouldn't you? And so you'd be you'd be doing it with the help. You'd be allocating it with the help of the Internet. Sure. But you can vote. I mean, in, in lots of voting happens on the yeah, Internet. That, that's, and also, I mean, lots of voting does. Yeah. But one of the things that I, I find that the the movement towards um, sites that, as I say, uh, try to make sense of a very complicated mm. parliamentary democracy for people who don't have a lot of time spending to think to spend thinking about it. I find that development quite concerning and something that I would be worried if uh, policy choices were being made on that basis because I think the internet is not necessarily the place where people ex- uh, express views in the most measured and conservative way. I, I, I completely agree and, and my book argues that most people actually tend not to be interested in getting involved in detailed political debate and I think long may that continue. You know, I think I think actually I, I think the, I think a less engaged public in in the in the in the details of policy but is a good thing. But everything's political. You know, there's so many things people think they're not political, but actually they think they care about what's around sure. them. They care about issues. Sure, which but are but here's the thing: uh, eighteen months ago, 
essentially people were asked to decide the entirety of our future foreign policy, our future diplomatic policy, our future economic policy, uh, the way that we understand culture. I used to work in the European Parliament and on, on, on cultural briefs. Um, that kind of thing. We, you know, we were asked to decide all of those things with with one vote. And most people, if you say to them, if I put you on the spot and said I want you to decide what our diplomatic policy should be, you would quite rightly say, no chance. I'm not taking that responsibility. I, you know, I'd rather stick needles in my eyes. And and you'd be right to. I think that actually what we do is we get we ask people more than we should do to get involved in the nitty gritty of policy. And I think actually what we need to do is we need to do what representative democracy was always about, where you simply choose from from competing visions. Can I take you back to that thing where you said stop moaning about Brexit? (laughs) (laughs) It was like a knife to your heart, wasn't it? It was quite irritating to me. So, I mean, regardless of whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, it is something that is taking place. Yes. There is a two-year process until it does. Why on earth would someone who doesn't agree with it not say that they don't agree with it? Because you're not going to change anyone's mind in doing so, have you? I mean, have we? Are, are we going to? Are we going to go out into an intellectual argument? Are we going to go out into the street and bump it and 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 pass people who have had their minds changed by this intellectual argument since the vote? Have you never met anyone who's changed their mind? I have met some on people, but I, I, on, on any I have met some people, but it's they, it's a lot harder than than you know the, the you know the sort of Habermasian notion of the coffee shop where people get together and you know sit down and deliberate and change their minds. That's not how democracy works. It's not how politics works. I mean, you, you'll be you're familiar with the, the backfire effect, where if you give someone absolutely reams of evidence why something that they have a strong preference on is wrong, they will finish the argument and be more convinced they were right than ever before. Do you think that our attitudes towards race are the same today as they were 50 years ago? Oh, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that people don't change their minds gradually, but on this principle, the argument to... What I'm saying to you is... That, I'm not saying to you... So, I mean, if you want to moan about Brexit all you like, fine. I moan about it all the time. I'm, I'm <laughs> very pro-European. My argument is that that's not the argument you need to win. The argument you need to win is that it's not the will of the people. It never was. My, I mean, my, you know, before the referendum, I was writing things saying I'm a lot more frightened of living in the country that makes decisions by referendums than I am of us deciding to leave the EU. I agree with you there, but that, I don't re- see that, that, that Brexit's the sim- Brexit's, Brexit is the symptom of, of being a, this crude plebiscitary democracy rather than, rather than the problem itself. Soblem, fr- pr- solve the, pr- the plebiscitary problem and Brexit goes away. Brexit would not be possible. Hmm. If we weren't, you know, the, 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 it, it simply, it, it, I promise you, it would not be possible for this country to leave the EU in the way it is doing. There is a way, there is a good way of leaving the EU, and that would be possible. It's just that no one would vote for it. It would, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to win an election on it. And to my mind, the democracy is where your your preferred policies are the ones that a democracy will decide. I mean, your argument is an argument against referendums, which, which I, I, you know, we're all in the position, I think, to be quite sympathetic towards at the moment. Yeah. But nevertheless, going on about referendums right now, when we're facing really quite significant damage to the quality of life of people in this country, just doesn't seem to me a very fruitful avenue to pursue. One thing that, that kind of I found it both intriguing and scary is where you, you, you kind of like dismiss the idea that what's happened with Brexit and Trump is this kind of... Uh, this sort of weird nationalist spasm and sort of like the end of something and that the democracy will recover and Macron being the sort of classic example. And you feel that this is this is sort of part of a permanent shift. And you mention 
this Machiavellian idea of virtue and a crisis or something that's so important that, he, that the old status quo simply is untenable. Now, I was just been reading this book from 1941, The Managerial Revolution, which yes. is very... Oh, you know it. Right? Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, 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 at, at, if, if you've read that, you'll know where I'm coming right. from. But it really calmly explains why it is impossible for democracy to survive World War... Capitalism and democracy to survive World War II. And, of course, mm. both of those things did survive World War II. Like you said, there is some, there's, there's playfulness in this book as well. But, I mean, how certain are you that this is a kind of a permanent shift and that we, that we cannot go back to... No, I, I think, I think democracy is quite a robust thing. And I think <laughs> that it does go through, it, it has its burps, and I think it will recover from this particular burp. And I think one of the things we'll do is we'll, we'll all put our heads together and say, you know what, no matter what we thought about Brexit... and. We're not, we're not going to do referendums again. We're not going to do things in that way. And an awful lot of people who are pro-Brexit, have, have, you know, I've got friends who are pro-Brexit. I can't, I can't get them to change their minds on Brexit, but they'll say, you know what, it's not a decision to make by a referendum. It's not the right way to do it. <laughs> and what's more, it's perfectly permissible to think that leaving, you know, that there, are, there are legitimate arguments that I'm, I'm sympathetic with that, uh, that, that, that saying that there is a future for this country, a bright future for this country outside of the EU. That as an argument is a separate one from that you make any good you know even if even if that were true you will all, we will always screw up we'll get the worst version of brexit by doing it through a referendum and what's more we've seen it it's it's a way of putting this country into a position where its negotiating position is awful you know the, the, i wouldn't swap swap the the position of, uh, with any of the british government mandarins who are out negotiating because they've essentially had all of their cards laid face up on the table for them it's a bad negotiating position there is a way that a representative democracy could leave the eu it would go to the eu and say you know it would use its position within the eu to get the eu to be a lot more clear about what leaving the eu means in the first place the fact is the British government has never gone to the EU institutions and forced them to be a lot more to make leaving a possibility. You know, any government that's serious about that would spend years building a consensus that the EU should, any good club should make it easy for people to leave. I've always thought the biggest problem the EU's had, it, it doesn't expel countries every now and then. You know, and no, no club works properly unless it can sometimes say, Italy, Berlusconi, you've got to go. Hungary... Uh, you know, hung Hungary should not be inside the EU yeah, I mean, they're in, the way, in the way it conducts things. itself at yeah, the moment. Actually now. Yeah. And you can well, see them expelling Poland and Hungary. It's not an impossible thing to... Uh, I think certainly Hungary, yeah. Mm. Thanks, Paul. Um, it's a fascinating book and lots to argue about. Save Democracy, Abolish Voting is published by Democratic Society Editions. It's sold out on Amazon, but you can find it at demsoc.org. And that's the end of our show. Thanks to Andrew Adonis and to Ros Taylor and Ian Dunt and Paul Evans. Remember, you can hear the show again and find all of our past shows via our website, Romaniacs.com. We'll be back next week to help Britain weasel its way out of Brexit, for the weasel is a noble beast. Listener Caroline Will has this week's sign-off, this time in Dutch. Thank you for listening. Tot de volgende keer. And here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster from Corner Shop, available now on all download stores and Spotify, and the traditional roll call of Patreon supporters. And it's thanks from me to John Green, Tim Featherstone-Griffin, Luke Baxter, Timothy Mockett, Daniel Corbell, John Adam Scott-Green and James Hunt. And many thanks to Alex Marsh, Patrick Chamberlain, Adam Daddy, Graham Johnson, Judith Poser, Sally Osborne and Richard McGough. And thanks from me to Richard Stevens, Chris Hudson, Eva Maria Bunin, Caroline Ashley, Mike Bull, Don Glennon and Bruce Boughton. See you next week. 